Hello there, and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. Um, you can congratulate me because I just became the father again of a beautiful little baby boy, and uh, so we've taken a bit of time off of podcasting for that reason. And we're coming back now, and um, starting off with this one on uh, Judas. Now, why am I doing this one on Judas? If you look at my blog, you'll find that I have a post. Actually, it was a research paper exactly on this topic. And uh, as I've had a bit of a break, um, reflected on, on the little bit of podcasting I've done as I'm trying to get, get back into this and get started again. And honestly, I've been having a pretty hard time. Um, I've been out of academics for a while, and I'm preaching sermons, and I'm... Uh, reading books and I'm listening to podcasts, but I'm not engaged at the same level as when I was a student. And so it's hard because I feel like my podcast should be up to the quality of a research paper. Um, But it's just hard to find that kind of time Um, and that kind of resources because I don't have a library as readily available to me. And so um, while I keep working on, right now I'm working on on a blog post or on a series of podcasts on uh, the lower criticism, the dating of the New Testament, and the Da Vinci Code. Um, and it's it's really been difficult to get it all finished. Um, and so I think I'm going to keep on with that, and I'm going to get it done. But in the meantime, I think what would be helpful to me and to you is to go back and um, share some of the insights I gleaned in the research papers and the, blo- and the major blog posts I did um, on the blog, because I have a lot of really great stuff there, but some of it, um, well, it's mixed in with, you know, just this, that, and the other. I've got over 300 blog posts, and I certainly wouldn't expect everybody to just go read them all. Um, some of the earlier stuff, especially my writing, is, is pretty sad. Um, I think I've grown a little bit in my writing skills, but but some of the concepts I'm, I'm conveying are still helpful. So I'm going to be... Um, using some of the blog posts that I wrote earlier and um, create some podcasts out of them. And they should be really good podcasts because all the research is done, all the facts are right in front of me, and I should be able to do a really great job. So with no further ado, let's get into this topic of Judas. Now, this is a classic kind of um, contradiction in the Bible or um, a conflict between two biblical accounts. And this has often been presented as kind of... um, an attack against Christianity. Look, uh, in Matthew it says one thing about how Judas dies, but in Luke Acts it says something different. So what do you do with that? And uh, evangelical Christians have always held, or have most evangelicals would hold, that the Bible is inerrant. That means there's no mistakes in the Bible. Um, and we're going to have a podcast on inerrancy soon. That'll be another one of those like big research things that'll push me on my end to really make sure I'm saying things right and have my, my research in order. But for the ma- for the moment, um, I just want to look at this topic because this was really um, the watershed issue for me. This is the issue that really helped me decide whether or not I believed in inerrancy because um, I grew up believing basically that the Bible didn't have mistakes and it went to a college that taught inerrancy went to a seminary that taught against inerrancy. So even though Briarcrest College and Seminary is an evangelical school, uh, they would lean towards the teachings of Karl Barth that basically, like the Bible is God's word, um, but it's also written by men. 
And so they would say, yes, even though it's it's got mistakes, God still uses it. God still speaks through it. So that's a different sort of perspective. And so I was really wrestling with this. Uh, and this issue kind of became my um, uh, my defining moment. So as I said, I am going to have a podcast on inerrancy, and I don't want to dwell too much on that issue or how I resolve it. Um, but one thing that William Lane Craig said was helpful to him and that he recommended to others when he had po- he has a podcast on doubt um you could probably find that on his website just searching for um resources on doubt and he said take one issue and just drive it into the ground just chase it into the ground um whatever that issue is for you that's causing you issues research it right to the very end and um you can't research all the issues surrounding christianity but just pick one and uh, this was my issue. This is the one that I picked. And as I researched it, I found, oh, actually, there isn't a contradiction. And that was hugely helpful to me. So I did just want to mention again, in case you didn't catch it, you can get all this information from this podcast on my blog, which is no nolongerbechildren.com. And um, and it's just called, uh, How Did Judas Die and Did He Buy a Field? You can actually just Google for that. It's popular enough that it'll just come up on a Google search. How Did Judas Die and Did He Buy a Field? Um, but I know there's there's commuters among us, and uh, there's people that earn their living driving trucks that can listen to the podcast and don't have time for blogs. So that's why we're doing this. Um, the first place I go in my research paper here is just the issue in all its glory, the problem in all its glory. What What is the issue? What is the problem? The problem is an apparent discrepancy between Matthew 27 feverishly clipping there as you can hear Matthew 27 3 to 10 and this is the account of Judas's death that I think we're all familiar with uh, it says then when Judas who had been betrayed who had betrayed Jesus saw that he had been condemned he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying I have sinned by betraying innocent blood but they said what is that to us see to that yourself and he threw the piece of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. So that's what we're familiar with. Uh, Judas, you know, betrayed Jesus for money, and then, but then apparently he didn't think it would go as far as it did when he saw that Jesus was going to be put to death. He felt sorry about it, went, re- tried to return the money. They didn't take the money, so he threw the money very dramatically in the temple, ran out and hanged himself. It continues, the chief priest took the piece of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which it was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Okay, so that's one account. Um, the second account, uh, this this issue, this isn't actually mentioned in either Luke or in Mark. It's only Matthew that mentions, or in John. So it's only Mar- Matthew that mentions um, the uh, the repentance and, and hanging of Judas. In Luke, ele- Luke 1, sorry, in Acts 1, just so you know, Luke and Acts are, it's generally considered to be one book. Um, it was written by the same person, uh, you, probably bound together, but separated um, when they when they bound the, the New Testament together. So we often talk about Luke-Acts. 
which is why I was calling it Luke instead of Acts. Um, so Luke 1, 18-19. Much shorter account. Um, now this man acquired a field. Okay, so it's this is Paul talking about, or Peter talking about how they need to find a new apostle because there are supposed to be 12 apostles. Judas betrayed Jesus and then killed himself, so they're down to 11. They need to get a new apostle to fill his role um, because it's symbolically very important to have 12 apostles. Um, and it just mentions um, in verse 18, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hecaldema, which is field of blood. So, again, it's a much shorter account, but it seems on first reading to be quite a bit different than the first account. Um, it, it seems as though, if we just take Matthew by itself, it's, I mean, it seems that Judas was guilt-ridden, he changed his mind, um, he committed suicide, but before that he, res he, he felt sorrow about what he um, had done, and that the Jewish leaders took the money and uh, bought this field. Now in Luke, it seems that Judas didn't repent, that he callously took the money from Jesus' betrayal to the marketplace. He bought a field, and but God's righteous indignation caught up with him. And sometime when he was out in his field, he tripped and fell and burst open, and his intestines gushed out. And his falling and exploding was so horrifying that uh, the field came to be known as uh, Hakeldema, um, the field of blood, because of his blood. So... There's a number of ways of trying to deal with this. Some people just ignore it. A lot of people just aren't aware of it. Um, try and minimize it or deny the the discrepancy between the two. Um, but there is there is tension here. There is difficulty. And, I mean, it's fairly clear that it doesn't change the plot line of the story. It doesn't change anything central, important to theology or doctrine or anything about how Jesus died or, or Jesus dying for our sins or anything like that. But for us who are trying to maintain the idea that no scriptures are inerrant, there's no mistakes in scriptures, it's important that there aren't contradictions. So there's at least seven uh, difficulties that need to be addressed here. Did Jesus, did Judas feel remorse is number one. Number two, did Judas return the money? Number three, who sold the field? Number four, who bought the field? Number five, did Judas ever own the field? Six, was Judas's death suicide or accidental? And seven, how did Judas die? <laughs> and eight, I have a, a typo here in my paper. Eight, whose blood was the field named after? So as you start digging and, and studying these two passages, all eight of those difficulties kind of arise. It seems like, like we have two very different accounts here. Um... So first of all, let's take a look at um, the different ways that Matthew and Luke were written, the different audiences, and that's going to help us understand um, the differences uh, that we have here. Now, we are going to have a podcast on inerrancy, but um, something from that, that realm of thought that we need to mention is that evangelicals in the past have had have tended to have, and I could say just, you know, Christians in the past have tended to have um, an overly wooden idea of how the, the scriptures were written. 
um, just basically thinking, well, God just said it, and somebody sat there and wrote exactly what what the Holy Spirit was saying to them. And um, as more and more the Bible is studied by people that don't believe in the Bible, or by people that are informed with with scientific with various tools from modern science, we're able to see more and more the the human fingerprints on the Bible, uh, the human element. And um, certainly liberal scholars would say, well, there you go, it's just, um, it's just a human book. And I think what evangelicals are coming around to saying now is saying it's a divine and a human book. And often we um, reference like Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully human. And scriptures are, in the same way, they're fully God, fully human. The, the scriptures don't say this of themselves, but it's a helpful kind of a tool uh, that we have developed to explain that, yes, scriptures are very human, and yet they're perfect, and they express the mind and the ideas of God. That's helpful to say because um, both Matthew and Luke, and, and, and also Mark and also John, they're written by human people to human audiences, and they have a certain agenda, they have a certain goal uh, in, as they're writing. Now, it's important to point out that um, just because they have an agenda, they have a goal, that doesn't mean that they're fiction. If somebody writes uh, a, um, an autobiography, or sorry, a biography about Martin Luther King Jr., for example, this person might be, for example, a black person who um, is directly affected by the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so he's writing from that perspective, probably kind of, this is my hero, this is um, how he's changed my life, etc. Or somebody might write um, a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. from a white perspective. And let's just say, for example, that this person um, had heard enough about glorifying Martin Luther King Jr. And he wanted to take him down a notch and talk about how he had had affairs and how he plagiarized and, and kind of the other side of his life. So these two people might approach the same material from two different perspectives, and they might write very different biographies. Um, but both of the biographies, if if they were well done, would be correct. It's just a different perspective. It's a different side of the coin. In the same way Matthew was writing... Well, I'll give you another example that's maybe not quite so emotionally charged. Uh, we just had a baby. And um, with every baby, there's a birth story. And we had it uh, with midwives in a birthing center. And so I was there. I was I caught the baby. I was kind of an integral player in that. I mean, the midwives made me feel like I was doing something important anyways. Um, and uh, later that night, I wrote out the birth story from my perspective. And a few days later, my wife wrote out the birth story from her perspective. And then we compared them. And they're very different stories. Um, but they don't contradict directly. There's a few points where it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, my, my story kind of corroborates hers. Uh, and this is how real life works. Um, when two people recount a story from different perspectives, um, a real story, a true story that actually happens when we have multiple people re recounting it, we actually have a, a bigger picture. And the points of apparent tension actually are really helpful because they show that um, that one person isn't simply copying the other person and if there's things that you know if 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 Luke had have had access to Matthew he probably would have ironed out this issue of 
of John, of um, how Judas died. But apparently he was writing without access to Matthew. And so he made this, this comment without referencing Matthew's uh, information. And so that actually shows us that these are two sources that are being written independently of each other, but corroborate the same event. And so the fact that there's some tension there actually makes the, the account more probable. Because that's how real life is recounted uh, when it actually happens and when the same thing is being witnessed from different perspective. So Matthew is um, likely written by um, the tax collector Matthew, who is mentioned uh, in one of the Gospels. And it was, it was written to the Jews. And so it's written from a very Hebrew, very Jewish perspective. There's a lot more referencing of the Old Testament in Matthew than the others than the other Gospels as well. Um, there's a huge amount of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. There's more teaching in Matthew than the other Gospels, except John perhaps, but very focused on kind of the sermon, kind of preaching aspect of Jesus. And um, Luke was a, he wasn't Greek, but he was very immersed in the Greek world. He was a physician. He was trained as a medical doctor of the time. Um, which, you know, in the time, remember this is ancient Greece before the collapse of Rome, before the Dark Ages. So being a doctor in that day and age was actually a fairly, um, something that us in the modern world could actually recognize as this is a real profession. Uh, he's not like, um, a witch doctor or, or, um, whatever we would have had in the Middle Ages. Um, and Luke writes with a very polished, very, it's the most elegant Greek in the New Testament, so I've been told. And uh, he writes with a very uh, articulate and a very um, professional tone. I've often thought that Luke is a great gospel for our generation, especially where I'm working at on a university campus. It's perfect for um, explaining to an educated mind. Uh, and all the gospels kind of aim at a different target in their original context, and they kind of speak to different people. Uh, if you don't know, um, the four Gospels represent four different uh, retellings of the life of Christ from four different perspectives, and they really corroborate and, and tell the story from a different perspective with some tension points, but the tension points really show um, show that it, they help to strengthen the story. So, I hope I'm not saying too much by way of introduction, but uh, Matthew, again, was written to to Jews, and Luke was written, written to Greeks and to the educated world. And so they're going to pull out different things in the story to kind of tell the story that they're trying to tell. It's a true story, it's a biography about Jesus, but they have uh, a message, an agenda to tell. And having an agenda, again, it doesn't mean that what they're writing is fiction, it means what they're writing is human, it means what they're writing, it's, it's part of, uh, it's a human literary genre. So that being said, Matthew has at least four reasons. I'm going to read a little bit here because um, I think I wrote it pretty well. Writing to a Jewish audience, Matthew has at least four reasons for mentioning Judas's death. First, in the interchange between Judas and the Jewish leaders, Matthew can point to the fact that the Jewish leaders have shed innocent blood. So big um, Matthew is, is trying to prove that the Jewish leaders have done wrong and that they are guilty. That's one of his... Um, the messages that he's trying to convey. 
uh, they're willing to recognize the defilement of the money on Judas, but they're blind to their own guilt. They said that we can't do anything because this is blood money. Well, it's them that, that caused the, the murder, um, but they won't admit to their own guilt. Secondly, they have totally rejected their Messiah, as is in keeping with the pattern in the Old Testament. Third, Matthew makes a connection with the Old Testament prophecy about the purchase of a potter's field with the Messiah's wages. Finally, many believe that Matthew is intentionally portraying Judas with the archetype of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. So you can just go read that story if you want. It's just this minor character that committed suicide in the Old Testament. Um, by contrast, Luke's concern is very minimal. He only wishes to make it clear that disciples quickly re return their numbers to 12. So basically, Luke, he just wants to make sure that there's 12 apostles. That's And he just wants to mention quickly, it's even in parenthesis in my Bible, just to, what about this Judas guy that you mentioned? Oh, well, in case you didn't read the first book, this is what happened to Judas. The mention of Judas's death is almost parenthetical. If Luke wished to teach his readers anything from the account, it's that sinners are judged for their sins. When reading Luke's sparse treatment of the matter, the reader is forced to fill in the gaps with inferential information. And this is really the key um, to unlocking this tension between the two. Is that Luke says so little um, that he implies certain things. When you read it, you're like, oh, okay. You, you kind of fill in the gaps. And that filling in the gaps... Um, is where the problem lies. So he doesn't actually say things that contradict so much as he implies certain things that contradict. Um, most of the differences between the accounts arise from differences which are only implied. The remaining difficulties can be explained with reference to Matthew and Luke selecting different but non-contradictory aspects of Judas's death to best illustrate the point they were making for their unique audiences. So right off the bat here, there's a few differences that we can reconcile pretty quickly. Um, Luke's account, for one thing, may imply that Judas never repented of his sins, but he nowhere says as much. It just says, you know, he he bought the potter, he acquired the potter's field, and then he fell headlong and died. It doesn't say whether he repented or not. Matthew supplies the information that the previous owner of the field was the potter, and this information. Uh, supplements Luke's account without any contradiction. Luke doesn't mention who owned the field, so Matthew does, so that helps. It doesn't, uh, doesn't contradict. Finally, it's possible to presume that the field became known as Hakeldema, or field of blood in Hebrew, or Aramaic, I'm not actually sure. Um, probably Aramaic, uh, but Hakeldema is, became the name of the field. It could have become the name of the field because of Jesus' blood and Judas's blood or either, or it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, so that's not really an issue. It's not really a contradiction. And uh, finally, Luke implies that Judas was walking in the recently acquired field. But this is not explicitly mentioned in the text. All it said is that he acquired a field, and later that he fell headlong in the field. It doesn't actually explicitly say that he went walking in his field. So... Uh, now we need to look at two difficulties that are a little bit more difficult, and um, and that will kind of bring this home for us. So the first question is, who bought the potter's field? That's really, um, as you start to dig, that becomes a really significant issue. And the second issue is, how did Judas die? So the most, probably the most troubling difficulty here is the issue of who purchased the field. 
because it says pretty clearly, and I'm just going to go read it here, in Acts. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. So it says pretty clearly in Luke that, uh, that Judas bought this field. Whereas in Matthew, it says very clearly that, that Judas threw the money in the temple, left, hanged himself, and then the priests and, and the Pharisees uh, bought the field. So who was it that bought the field? We know the, the field was bought with the money that, um, uh, with Jesus' blood money. But who was it that went and bought it? So I'm going to read from Alfred Edersheim on this. It's not lawful to take into the temple treasury for the purchase of sacred things money that has been unlawfully gained. In such case, the law provided that the money was to be restored to the donor, and if he insisted on giving it, that he should be induced to spend it for something for the public wheel, for the public good. By a fiction of the law, the money was still considered to be Judas's, and to have been applied by him in the purchase of the well-known potter's field. So, they couldn't... The, the temple could not receive money that was used, that was gotten in an ill-gotten way. Uh, and so the custom was, you know, you, you just push this back on the person and say, we can't, we can't take your money um, if it's blood money or, you know, was, was gotten, ill-gotten Ill gains. Um, but if somebody really insisted on giving the money, then say, okay, well, buy something for the city. Um, buy a, a statue or a fountain or something for the city. And so uh, that's why they bought this potter's field, which was going to be a, a graveyard for uh, foreigners, and um, you know, for the for the good of of the general population. Um, and so, by a, a legal fiction, it was still considered to be Judas's money, and it, the money was still associated with him, even though he was already dead by this point. Um, now let's go to the Greek, and I'm going to try to pronounce these right. I was trying to be super smart when I was writing this paper, so I wrote the actual Greek characters in my paper, and I'm going to try and pronounce them. It's been a long time. So in, uh, in Luke, it says, This man acquired, and the word acquired is what we're going to look at, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. The word here is extome, I believe. Um, which means to get, that is, acquire by any means or to own. So it's this general idea of acquiring, getting. And this mean can, this word can mean purchasing or acquiring things with money, as in Acts 20, Acts 8.20 or 22.28. But it may also refer to acquiring money by services provided. So you go to work and you acquire money, which is probably the opposite, really, of paying for something as in uh, Matthew 10.9, or acquiring, acquiring spiritual riches, as in Luke 21.19, or stewarding possessions which cannot be sought, be bought or sold, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.4. So it's kind of this general, I mean, acquiring is a good, is a good English rendering of this uh, Greek word. It's just this general idea of getting something. By contrast, Matthew uses a word... Um, Agorazo, I believe, uh, to say that the, fair, the, the Jewish leaders went and bought a field in the market. And this word literally means uh, to go to market. So by implication, it, it means to purchase something probably with money. 
And so what we have is in Luke, it says that he acquired a field, using this general word, whereas in Matthew, it says the Jewish leaders went and bought it. And so to bring these two together, thus Judas acquired a field posthumously through the agency of the Jewish leaders who purchased it on his account with his money. So th this is, again, a tension. But when you, when you really look at it, it's like, well, actually, it could be that Luke was, he knew of the story, he just chose to, to put it in this light for his purposes. Um, whereas Matthew put things in a different light for his purposes. And I thought I had mentioned, um, maybe I mentioned it in the conclusion. I think a big part of why um, Matthew writing to Jews did not, really emphasize or, or highlight the fact that this field became known with Judas was because to own property for Jews was a really important thing. It was, um, and also legacy was very important. And so Absalom, for example, he didn't have any kids. This was the son of, of David who um, tried to usurp his throne and then uh, lost in a civil war. Um, but he didn't have kids, so he set up a monument to himself, which still apparently is in Jerusalem to this day, or a monument that, that still has his name is still there. Because he wanted a legacy, he wanted to be known in the future by something on earth. And so to for Matthew writing to Jews, if he said this this field, the potter's field, is Judas's field, that would have been like this huge reward to Judas. And so he makes a real big point of saying, well, the Pharisees went out and bought the field, and the field belongs, it's the potter's field for, um, uh, for, to bury foreigners in. Whereas Luke, writing to Greeks, he doesn't really have this, this intention. He just wants to kind of hang the dead albatross around Judas's neck and say he bought this field, he acquired this field of blood. Um, and so there's a, there's a reason why they're they're shifting the information slightly to their to to help work in their story. Again, they're not they're not changing the story, they're not distorting the story, but they're going to present it in a different way depending on their audience to try and convey their message. So the next issue is how did Judas die? Again, in Luke it says that um or in Acts, I keep saying Luke, but I mean Luke Acts. Um, it says, Now this man acquired a field by the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. So, how did he die? In uh, Matthew, it's also fairly short. It just says he went out and hanged himself. So, in one, he acquired a field, and then he, he fell, in, and his intestines gushed out. In the other one, he hanged himself. Again, we can just look at the Greek here. Well, actually, before we do that, there's an, a ninth issue here that just comes to mind is where did Judas die? And it does seem like Judas died in this field that was known as the potter's field. It could have influenced the Jewish leader's decision to buy it. Um, hey, he died there, we might as well buy it for him and, and we'll turn it into a, a graveyard for foreigners for whatever reason. But it does seem like that's where he died. Um, but how did he die is the question we're we're looking at. Now, again, let's look at the Greek. Um, this this word that's translated and having falling and ha and falling headlong uh, in Acts one eighteen it says and falling headlong all his intestines gushed out. Uh, I'm not going to attempt the Greek, but Marvin Vincent translates this as having become headlong, 
whereas A.T. Robertson translates it as having become flat on his face as opposed to on his back. So it's actually, when you stop to look at it, it's fairly brief and a little bit jarring how Luke recounts this. It says he bought, he acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open. So what happened in between there? <laughs> like he bought the field and boom, he exploded or he, he fell over. So what happened in between there? There's this, um, there's kind of this gap. So that's falling headlong. The second part of it is, um, he burst open and, and the, the English equivalent, he burst open is a good representation of the Hebrew, of the Greek here. Uh, it's a fairly violent word. Um, the work, the word here is last, last cho, last go. Uh, that means literally to crack, to burst open with a noise, and is used of Homer to describe the bones cracking beneath a devastating blow. So as a result of being um, face down, all suddenly falling face down, all his intestines gushed out. So normally when you're walking in a field and you trip, and you, even if you, you know, face plant, it's not normal to just explode, <laughs> like with a noise and bang, and, and intestines go gushing everywhere. Uh, normally, when you trip and fall, you you pick yourself up and and you keep going, right? So there's something going on here that's a little bit different. And actually, this is what happens sometimes when you have two different accounts. You have to think of the birth stories. You know, I might have mentioned something just really briefly and quickly, and somebody reading my account says, "Well, that's kind of weird. Like he just mentioned that this happened, but that it doesn't really make sense." And when you read my wife's account. She might have elaborated a bit more on that detail, and you say, "Ah, oh, that's that's how the two go together." That's kind of what's happening here. Like Luke has a very brief account, and it it kind of doesn't really make or like it's it's surprising. It's like what's going on here? He acquired a field, and then he fell and blew up. Um, so in Luke, it says that he hanged himself. So how can we fit these two together? Well, there's a a lot of ways that those two could go together, and I've listed about three or four here, and they kind of get gross. Um, but, you know, if you hang yourself, uh, for one thing, you can jump off of a high cliff. And if the rope is is firm enough and the cliff, cliff is high enough, you can actually rip yourself in half just from the force of falling and, and sudden deceleration. Or at least um, open up the intestinal cavity and, and intestines can fall everywhere. And and perhaps we can say, well, then after that, then the, the rope broke and he fell. Um or if he hanged himself from a low elevation, maybe just, I'm sorry, but just sitting down uh, to hang himself. Um, after he was heated up in the sun, eventually his stomach would have, you know, ruptured just from, from fermentation and, and stuff like that and vultures eating him and stuff like that. So it's pretty, pretty nasty, really. Um, but uh, the bottom line here is that... Um, what seems clear is that Judas's corpse was discovered. Um, when it was discovered, he was face down with the implements of his strangulation in view. So there was a rope there. Somehow he fell off the tree or something. And his in intestines were gushed out on the ground. So And he was in this potter's field that eventually was bought by the, the leaders of the temple um, to become a burial ground for foreigners. So to meet their ends, Matthew highlighted certain aspects of his death, about you know shamefully going out and strangulating himself uh, or hanging himself, whereas Luke 
uh, mentions certain other things about him falling down and exploding and, and his guts being everywhere. Um, kind of interesting that Luke the physician kind of mentions the the anatomy of it and, and physically how it looked and physically what happened to his body. Um, perhaps because he's a physician and, and that kind of interested him. But, um, again, there's not a contradiction here. And so let me just read my conclusion here and then uh, maybe I'll just wrap up with a few personal mentions here. Um, so we find that Judas felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders in Matthew 27, 3. Then he went away and hanged himself, Matthew 27, 5. By the time he was found, he was no longer hanging, but he had become face down and he had burst open in the middle so that all his intestines gushed out, Luke 1, 18. Meanwhile, the chief priests, at a loss as to what to do with the funds dedicated to the temple, decided to put Judas's money into the temple treasury. Decided not to put his money in the temple treasury, Matthew twenty-seven six, but instead bought the field where Judas was found, um, which belonged to uh, a certain potter, as a burial place for strangers, Matthew twenty-seven seven. This was the very field where Judas was discovered, and the field came to be associated with his memory, as well as the innocent blood which he had betrayed. For both of these reasons, it became known as Hakaldema, or field of blood. So that is a reconciliation between Matthew and Luke, and their two accounts of how Judas died. And I said I would end with personal comments, but I don't really think there's anything else to say. Um, this seemed like a pretty significant issue for me growing up. Um, I found it on my own as, I don't even remember, like late teens, reading through Luke, and I was like, hey, this is, this doesn't line up. And uh, I thought I was the only person on the planet that knew there was this inconsistency with the scriptures. And uh, the few times I mentioned it to, you know, a pastor or somebody in authority, they didn't, they didn't know it existed, or um, they didn't know what to do with it. And so I felt like it was this big big secret and I was like man if everybody knew about this you know they'd stop being Christians and and they'd lose their faith and stuff and anyways once I finally got around to really you know reading a bunch of commentaries on it studying it um yes it's a little bit complicated to go through all that but at the same time life is complicated and how how stories are preserved through multiple testimonies is complicated um and I think that uh this the fact that when you push it, when you poke it, when you study it, when you push it to the ground and say, what did these passages actually say? It seems like it creates this coherent view from the two sources that actually makes the story a lot stronger in my view. And it really helps me um, have confidence that the rest of the scriptures, although there are apparent contradictions, if we took the time to study every single one of the apparent contradictions between the Gospels, between you know, Kings and Chronicles, between various passages of scriptures, I think we'd come to similar results that, um, that although there's apparent contradictions as you look deeper, underneath there is uh, an underlying unity to those two stories. So that is um, the end of the podcast on... Uh, how did Judas die and did he buy a field? I hope it was a blessing to you. Have a good day.